I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Bolthouse Farms Plant Protein Milk. There's an ongoing movement toward living a more plant-based lifestyle, which is something we spoke about at our wellness summit in Goop Health. In particular, our readers who are vegans are always looking for great dairy alternatives, and even the non-vegans at Goop love the non-dairy Bolthouse Farms Plant Protein Milk. It's made with protein from peas. And not only is it a delicious alternative to traditional dairy, it has 10 grams of protein per serving. This can give it a leg up on other alternative milks like almond milk, which has 1 gram of protein per serving. For more information on Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk and for store locations, visit bolthouse.com. Hi guys. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Barry Michaels. Barry is an incredible psychotherapist and the co-author with Phil Stutz of The Tools and Coming Alive. His actionable advice for getting unstuck and moving forward has helped me and so many others truly take control of our lives. Expansion, by definition, is stressful. It's like the system is getting bigger and stretching itself, okay? But that's a good kind of stress. That's the kind of stress that human beings really... That, that really adds to your vitality as a human being. It's the stress that we create for ourselves by avoiding those things that's much worse and much more destructive. He is my favorite partner in active problem solving and understanding everything from emotional triggers to what's possible when you step into your fears and put yourself in motion. And you have to almost become at one with fear in order to overcome it. You have to feel things in order to move through them. You can't stay on this side of them. Barry sat down with our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, to talk about quieting your inner critic, which he calls Part X, and tapping into your full potential. I don't know that I can really describe the depth of it, but it is a deep reckoning and a coming together with parts of yourself that got buried very, very early. But the payoff is enormous because you feel whole. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Before we get to Barry, let's talk about one of our partners. Have you guys caught up with the new HBO series Succession yet? It's from Adam McKay, the director of The Big Short, and in the loop writer Jesse Armstrong, and you don't want to miss it. It's the subject of many conversations here at Goop HQ. So here's a little bit about the show. Set in the boardrooms and penthouse apartments of New York City and beyond, Succession explores power, politics, money, and family in the cutthroat corporate world. The new drama follows the saga of the Roy family, owners of one of the biggest media companies in the world. When family patriarch Logan decides he isn't ready to hand over the reins just yet, his adult children take matters into their own hands. Succession airs Sunday nights at 10 p.m., and you can watch the first two episodes right now on streaming or on-demand platforms, only on HBO. Now, let's get to Elise and her interview with Barry Michaels. So take us back to the beginning. How did you transition to becoming a therapist? So there were 
really two kind of motivating forces in my family when, when I was growing up. One was being of service. It was very, very important to my parents that my sister and I live a life that tried to leave the world a better place than when we were born. And so being of service was very, very important to me. There was another sort of motivating force in my family that had to do with credentials, um, because my parents were very, very bright, but they were uncredentialed. My, my mother dropped out of college. My father went to college, but he never used it. It was a Jewish family, you know, and if you weren't a doctor and a lawyer, you were kind of a bum. So it was very important to them that we got credentials. So both my sister and I went to Ivy League colleges. I went to law school. I worked at a prestigious law firm. And somewhere around the one or two year mark at my law firm, I realized I had completely sacrificed that first motivating force. I wasn't doing anybody any good. I mean, the most important thing I did in three years of law was I merged three pickle companies. <laughs> Great accomplishment. <laughs> and I'm sure they're very grateful still. You know? But I had no idea what to do next because I had kind of lost myself in a certain way in just this hunger for prestige and, and credentials. And so I did something that I still look back on and can't quite believe I did, but I just quit. I walked into my boss's office one day and I said, I just can't keep working here anymore. And he, to his credit, said, that's understandable. I don't know what took you so long. You clearly <laughs> didn't want to be here, you know. And then I began this long sort of roughly six to 12 month process of just discovering what I wanted to do next. I packed a backpack. I took my guitar to Europe and just played guitar on street corners. And I did a lot of writing. And I gradually began to realize that the things that fulfilled me the most in life were when I could make a difference in someone's life. I was the guy in the law firm that all of the other lawyers came to and discussed their problems with. And even though I wasn't trained or anything, I was good at it. And so I thought, I could do that for a living. And I went back to school, and from day one, I just knew it was exactly what I was meant to do. And it's interesting because as a result of that decision, Many, many things came to me that I don't believe would have otherwise come to me. I, about a year after I graduated from social work school, I met my wife. And I met her at a psychotherapy conference, which obviously I never would have attended if I'd been a lawyer. And about a year after that, I met Phil Stutz, my co-author, who was just a fount of wisdom and goodwill and information and, you know, when we wrote two books together. And I, I don't believe that I ever would have found those people or opportunities unless I had taken that initial step. So, which goes to me, it goes to a very important point that I tell my patients, which is that when you're scared to do something, you know, unless it's life-threatening or something, just do it. Do it. Because when we use courage to inject ourselves into parts of life that we've shied away from, we expand and we also attract things to us that we would never be able to find on our own.
I really don't believe in the law of attraction as it's taught in The Secret, but I do believe there is a law of attraction that doesn't so much have to do with the way you think. It has to do with the way you participate in life. Courageous participation attracts positive things. Mm, I love that. There's so much to unpack there. And, you know, I want to get to the tools and I want to talk about those moments when you're sort of in motion, like sort of what you did just by taking that first step and then how the universe can sort of push you along. But before we get there, for people who are unfamiliar with the concept of the tools, like can you sort of take us through what Phil was developing and like yes. what you guys have refined? Sure. When, when, when I went to school in the 1980s, we were still, psychology was still back at a stage where the basic theory behind psychotherapy was if we can just get to the root of whatever caused your problem, whether it's anxiety or depression or procrastination or whatever, if we can uncover the root, that will free you from the problem. Which frankly never made any sense to me logically. I mean, if you have a stuck toilet, it doesn't help to understand how it got stuck. You know? <laughs> and I would never pay my plumber to sit there and try to explain to me how it got stuck. I just want him to unstuck the, unstick the toilet. You know? <laughs> so, you know, I, and, and one of my first patients, in fact, really crystallized this for me. She was, I'll never forget her, and I wrote about her in The Tools, which, you know, which is the first book. She came into therapy because she had a real problem with abandonment and jealousy. She would tap her, her boyfriend's phones and hack into his messages and sometimes even do drive-bys to see if there was anyone parked you know, at his apartment. And, and she came to me, and I'll never forget this, in the first session, she, she said, look, don't try to tell me why I have my problem because I already know. I've been in therapy before. My father abandoned our family when I was eight years old, and I felt really abandoned and scared and unloved, and I've been suspicious of men ever since, you know, kind of thing. Just tell me what to do about it. Mm. And I was caught completely short. It was like, well, I wasn't trained to tell you what to do, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. And that's why Phil was just like manna from heaven for me, because he had very specific tools that would enable people to overcome their problems. Now, just a couple of words about tools. Tools are short procedures from five seconds to maybe 20 second procedures that often involve visualizations. Sometimes they don't, but often they do. But what they do is if they're used over and over and over again, they bring up parts of your personality and forces in your personality that you didn't know you had. Like this woman didn't know she had the ability to soothe herself Mm. when she got anxious. She should always go investigate, you Mm -hmm. know, what was going on instead of learning to soothe herself. When I taught her one of our tools, which has to do with shadow work, essentially, and she began to learn to soothe the anxious, abandoned part of herself, which was her shadow, she didn't need to engage in that in that destructive behavior anymore. And it made for a stronger relationship because the guy didn't feel like he was being, you know, distrusted all the time. Mm-hmm. Totally. The shadow and, and that work, I think, is some of the trickiest and some of the most fascinating. But I think it's so resonant, this idea that you have a part of yourself that is 
not maybe taunting is the right word, but almost an intimidating factor force that's constantly suggesting that you can't do something or you don't deserve something or I'm sure you can articulate it better than I can, but can you explain sort of how you coach people to actively embrace their shadow? The shadow is a just a fascinating, fascinating concept. The last workshop I gave was all about the shadow. The first thing you need to know about the shadow is that it is literally a separate being with a separate identity living inside of you, okay? It doesn't have a separate physical body. It's not like a head sticking out of your neck. (laughs) But it does have a separate identity. To give you an example, my shadow and I have completely different tastes in music. I tend toward Bach, choral music, Vivaldi, that kind of stuff. My shadow (laughs) loves post-punk hardcore (laughs) that only probably 14-year-old skater boys like. All right? And I tell you, he just loves that shit. All right? (laughs) So uh, the shadow consists of whatever you are most ashamed or guilty about because it starts to develop as you become aware of the values of your family and of the world around you. I'll give you some examples. In boy world, it's better than it used to be, but in boy world, it's not a great thing to be easily hurt. Mm -hmm. or to be vulnerable, or to have, you know, hurt feelings, or to display your feelings a lot, or to be shy, or not to be athletic, you know, that kind of thing. All of that stuff gets stuffed into the shadow, all of those qualities and traits. You pretend that you don't have those qualities, but the shadow embodies those qualities. In girl world, again, it's better than it used to be, but it's not great to be loud, Mm -hmm. aggressive, assertive, entitled. That's a big one. It's Mm -hmm. not great to be entitled if you're a girl. Okay. So all of those qualities get stuffed into your shadow and are seen by you as negative because if they're acted upon, they're going to garner negative feedback Mm -hmm. from your parents, from your schoolmates, from society at large. Okay. Now, if you know, and this is a lot of what I train my patients to do, if you can start to visualize this part of you that you don't like, that you've hidden from other people because you're ashamed of it or you feel guilty about it, if you can start to visualize it and forge a relationship with it, even though on the surface it looks like it's the worst part of you, it actually becomes the best part of you. And let me give you an example of that. As I told you, I'm always been afraid of public speaking because I've been afraid of what people would think of me. And so my shadow is the part of me that's very fearful and shy and sensitive, all right? When I do workshops now, for days and certainly hours before the workshop, I just commune with my shadow. And by commune, I mean I visualize him, I have him by my side, I feel him near me, and I'm constantly telling him, I don't give a shit what they think about us. Mm. I'm here with you. In fact, I'm doing this workshop for you Mm. to show you that I don't care what they think of us. They can hate us. They can love us. It doesn't matter. I'm with you. You may look like a motherfucker, but you're my (laughs) motherfucker. You know, kind of thing. thing. And you can see where when you feel that bonded with yourself, not only can you express yourself in a fairly uninhibited way, 
you really don't care as much what people think of you. So you can really be free to, mm -hmm. you know, to be self-expressive. So there, there's a lot more to say about the shadow. I'll say one more thing, which is important. The shadow even has a different narrative. You know, we all create life narratives that usually have to do with how our parents screwed us over, or how this teacher was horrible, or, you know, your first love betrayed you, or something like that. So your narrative is all about the people in the outside world. But the shadow's narrative is about you. Mm. Because it lives inside of you. You have external villains in your life, but there's only one villain in the shadow's life, and that's you. Because when your mother died when you were five, you buried your grief and left him alone with it. Mm. Or when that lover betrayed you, you decided you were unlovable, which is the equivalent of saying, he's not lovable, mm -hmm. the shadow is not lovable. And you've been telling him that ever since. So one of the ways to bond with the shadow is to get in touch with how it has felt living inside of you all these years with you putting him down, burying him, hiding him whenever your, you know, high tony friends are around, you know, you never want your shadow to show, you know, with them, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can empathize with how he has felt or it has felt, you know, your entire life, that empathy is the beginning of a connection with your shadow. A lot of shadow work boils down to a reckoning with parts of yourself that you have really misjudged and a kind of an atonement mm -hmm. for that. So it's a, it's a, I don't know that I can really describe the depth of it, but it is a deep reckoning and a coming together with parts of yourself that got buried very, very early. But the payoff is enormous because you feel whole. Mm -hmm. You feel like you can really be yourself. And so how do you give the shadow definition? Is it essentially, is it like an exercise of everything you've ever held against yourself is like a core attribute of this person? Are you asking how, like, how do I help someone identify their shadow yeah. initially? Yeah. There are many different ways. I'll tell you one very simple way is just think of anything that you've ever done in your life that you feel ashamed of mm. or that you feel guilty about. You know, maybe you cheated somebody, maybe you lied to somebody, whatever, maybe some sexual misadventure or whatever it was. And just visualize that figure as your shadow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now imagine that the shame or the guilt that that figure is feeling isn't feeling it about be because of what he or she did or what you did back then. It's feeling it toward you because you have been shaming and blaming it for your entire life. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. So that's a good beginning. The other good, another good exercise for, for identifying the shadow is just imagine yourself standing in front of the most hypercritical person or group of people that you can imagine. For some people, it's their parents, whether they're dead or alive. Sometimes dead parents are more <laughs> have more of an effect than alive parents. Maybe it's your kid. Maybe it's your boss, you know, whatever. And try to see yourself through their hypercritical eyes. So we don't know what they really think of. They, they probably don't think about you that much at all. But if you're looking through their eyes 
and you're imagining how they criticize you, you're, you're seeing your shadow mm -hmm. because really these are just projections of your own self-criticism, your own self-judgment. Once you have an image of your shadow, then you can start to work with it. And I know this is going to sound strange to the uninitiated, but your shadow will begin to talk back to you. It'll begin to inform you. In fact, the story that I usually tell people about finding my own shadow, um, let me back up to just set up the story. If you can imagine your life from your shadow's point of view, the shadow feels put down, alienated, rejected by you, and frankly, doesn't have any reason to trust you. Mm -hmm. My shadow proved that to me because the first time I visualized him, he was, in my family, it, it was okay for the women to be emotional, especially angry, but men had to be Spock-like. Mm -hmm. We just had to be really rational. So my shadow got all of my anger. My shadow, first time I visualized him, was a 14-year-old boy, for some reason standing at the corner of Chautauqua and Sunset. I don't know why, <laughs> but that's where he was. And I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, how are you doing? He gave me the finger. He said, fuck you, asshole. And he walked away. Wouldn't even talk to me. Which I took as a sign of how much he distrusted me. And I decided, all right. I'm just coming back every day. This is going to be like Chinese water torture. <laughs> just going to bug him until he trusts that I'm not going to go away. And I did, did it literally every single day. Every single time his response was, fuck you and walk away. You know, until about a month, month and a half later, completely out of the blue, I didn't make this happen. I went up to him. I said, hey, you know, I just want to talk to you. And he put his hands on his hips and he said, all right. What the fuck do you want? Why do you keep coming down here? And that's when I knew, okay, he trusts me at least enough to have a dialogue with me. And that's when you can start to really discover what your shadow is and how it feels and what's really going on inside of you is when you can actually get a response mm -hmm. you know, from, from your shadow. So. And for the uninitiated, do you, is this in meditation? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's usually with your eyes closed. Um, you know, there are different ways to work on your shadow. The ones that I've been describing are like at least probably 30 seconds to a minute and a half or two minutes. What I also teach people to do once they have some familiarity with their shadow is to just do what I do in every session, which is I keep my shadow, I just keep an awareness of my shadow. I'm pointing my left side because for some reason he's always on my left side. It's probably because I'm right-handed. He's my sort of my inferior side. And I just try to maintain an awareness of him as I'm talking to the other person. It's not, you know, initially you might think, well, that, isn't that distracting? You're not focusing on the other person but he's so focused on the other person that it doesn't feel like it's distracting and in fact what I've discovered is that when I'm lost and don't know what to say and by the way this is a dirty little secret that therapists won't tell you is that half the time at least <laughs> we have no fucking idea what to say and what we're thinking is I have that problem too and I don't know how to solve it. Like, what am I going to say? You know, I'm gonna think. I've learned to turn to my shadow at those moments and tell him, please take over. I'm just lost. Mm -hmm. 
And I'd say seven or eight times out of 10, stuff will come out of my mouth at that moment that I swear to God I'd never thought of before. Mm-hmm. Stuff that's so good that I'm writing it down as I'm saying it because like, I got to remember this for the next guy, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. So it's one way to think of the shadow is that it's the agent of the unconscious, which means that it's sort of closer to this buried wisdom that's inside of us. And so it often, when you're in touch with your shadow, and you're talking or you're expressing yourself, it has the quality of these words are coming through me, yep. but they're not quite coming from me, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing, which is flow. And that's a, mm-hmm. for anyone who's in any creative endeavor and, you know, there's creativity in parenting, there's creativity in, in almost every endeavor. That's, that's a sublime state. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the state you want to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say like that, that state of channeling or feeling like you're tapped in or you're just downloading something that's not coming from you, but you're surprising yourself. That's it. Right. And I love that the tools in general are sort of structured around those aha moments as moments of resonance where you're like, wow, I'm finally moving. I'm taking steps. I'm creating change. And the universe is doing everything it can to help me. Yes. And exactly. Doors are opening. Yes, it's like everything is aligned and yeah. moving in the same direction. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Barry Michaels in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. As we learn more and more about the benefits of a plant based lifestyle, an increasing number of us are looking for substitutes that offer nutrition benefits and taste good. So we were thrilled to learn about the refrigerated, non-dairy, Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk. It's made with protein from peas. Not only is it a delicious and creamy alternative to traditional dairy, it has more protein than other options like almond milk. I use this in my morning coffee. My son Max likes it in his cereal and smoothies or just to drink at night. And you can even bake with it. So here are some hard facts. Besides having 10 grams of protein per 8-ounce serving, Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk contains 50% more calcium than dairy milk, and it's fortified with B12, a nutrient that a lot of vegans and vegetarians are looking to add into their diets. We've used Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk in a particularly good blueberry chia bowl here at Goop, and we'll be sharing the recipe soon on the site. In the meantime, for more information on Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk and for store locations, visit bolthouse.com. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Barry Michaels. That moment of feeling stuck and knowing that you need change. I mean, I'm sure most of your, like, that's primal, right? That's the beginning. Yes. What's the, like, how do you get people to move? I'm really dictatorial (laughs) as a therapist. I probably don't seem it. I'm a nice person. But in that room, I'm very insistent with people. Of course, I, you know, I can't. I can't, I don't have any real power over their lives. But look, one, one advantage I have, as, and, and every therapist has if they use it as an advantage, is that nobody comes to a therapist unless they're really, they're really stuck and really in pain and kind of out of options. I mean, think about it. It's not easy to go to a stranger and talk about yourself, the darkest, you know, 
feelings and fears that, that you have. And so I hear, and even more than hearing, I intuit and can feel because I am very empathic in the sense of like I pick up what people are feeling. I can feel what people are going through and I use that. It's like, look, you're miserable right now. You want this to get better. You have to do this, you know, kind of thing. But the truth is what I've found is that most people, most people, everybody that I treat now, frankly, they welcome it. It's not hard to get them to do things because they know it works and, and they're looking for answers that they haven't thought of you know, on their own. So even if it may sound a little crazy to them or they're new to the concept of the shadow or something else, they're certainly open to it and willing to try it because they know that if they don't, they're just back to their own misery, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Totally. And I think once you, once someone has a taste of that, like I, I remember early on in my career sort of having this very basic revelation. I wasn't really happy. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And I was like, you know, clearly, like, no one's going to reach down and, like, pluck me out of this right. and put me somewhere. Like, right. I have to deal with myself. Right. And then from there, it's like the momentum, you get the flywheel going. Yes. And I'll, I'll, you, you made me think of something else that I do that I think both Phil and I do, and I think it's very, very important, which is we're both good at seeing the problem, whatever it is, as an opportunity. And this isn't just wordplay. It's part of a much deeper philosophy that we have which is that life is challenging, but it's challenging for a reason. Mm -hmm. And the reason is it wants to bring out strengths in you that you might not even be aware of. Mm -hmm. And when you can frame problems in that way, and you have someone who at least is willing to like entertain the notion that, oh, yeah, I see that this problem is driving me towards something that could turn into a great strength or a great opportunity for me. They're much more willing to do what mm-hmm. you ask them to do. Yeah. Okay. I think the other part of it is that I'm very open to feedback. You know, what I do is I send people off with instructions about what to do, and the last instruction is do what I told you to do religiously and report your feedback honestly. If it didn't work, I need to know that. Mm-hmm. If you tried it diligently and it didn't work, then I've missed the boat and I need to, we need to do a mid-course correction, you know, kind of thing. So it becomes a relationship where I'm very confident we're going to get you moving and we're going to work on it together. And I may not always be right, but I'm always going to be open. And I'm always going to have a suggestion, always something that you can do. Yeah, which is so incredible. Because you think of, I love this idea, that idea of just the language of opportunity versus problem. And it's even when you think about the concept of stress and a lot of the work around stress now and this idea that the way that we framed it in society it's like stress is gonna fucking kill you and then that only creates more stress you're stressed about being stressed but the reality is there's also challenge stress Yes. And challenge stress is very good for you, which is this idea that you're going to rise to the occasion. And even that shift when they represent stress that way, it's dramatic. Like it has a totally different impact on your entire body. 100%. 100%. 
I talked about public speaking, and that's a good example of it. It is stressful for me to do public speaking, but it's more stressful for me not to. Right. Because I'm avoiding my karma, you know, right. and I'm miserable when I'm not doing it. <laughs> so definitely, there's good stress, and that's the kind of stress of, like, overcoming your fears or challenging yourself in new ways or anything that requires courage or, you know, or stretching yourself or expand. Expansion, by definition, is stressful. Mm -hmm. It's like the system is getting bigger and stretching itself, okay? But that's a good kind of stress. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of stress that human beings really... That, that really adds to your vitality as a human being. Mm -hmm. It's the stress that we create for ourselves by avoiding those things that's much worse and much more destructive. Can we talk about, and the tools, the book, is an incredible read in part because it's not too long. It's incredibly easy to understand and execute on and sort of, and it is practice, right? Like, that that application of it is really important. But can we just go through, let's talk about fear as one. Like if you're paralyzed, if you can't pick up the phone, like whatever it might be, can you just give us one version? Can you just take us through one tool? Sure. Yes. And, and fear is probably the most common thing that I deal with because, look, you scratch the surface of any human being and we're all afraid, right. you know. There's a very strange thing about fear, which is, it's a kind of a secret. If you move away from the things that you're afraid of, avoid them, procrastinate, what happens is the fear gets worse. Because deep down, by avoiding those things, you're really telling yourself deep inside, I can't handle that, okay? The converse is also true. If you move through fear, if you move toward it, it actually gets less, okay? My public speaking story. Now that I've done a fair amount of public speaking, I'm not as afraid of it. I couldn't possibly be as afraid of it as I was the first time I did it. There are two parts to overcoming fear. There's a behavioral part, and then there's a tools part. The behavioral part is do the thing you're afraid of. Just do it over and over and over again as much as you possibly can, and you will be less afraid. It's like, you know, to take an extreme case, there are people who are agoraphobic. You know, they, they literally can't leave their house. They become so phobic of the outside world. And what you do, and it's a, just a well-established cure for agoraphobia, is you get them to open the front door for five minutes every day. They don't even have to walk outside, but just open it, okay? Next week, you get them to open the front door and take two steps out onto the porch, okay? And they're scared, but they can do that, all right? That week, they've accomplished two steps out on the porch. Week three... It's five steps out on the porch. Week four, it's now they're down on the driveway, okay? By the way, on week five, opening the door, it's no problem. It doesn't scare them anymore. Because they've overcome fear so many times that the fear has receded. So the behavioral component of taking action, taking contrary action, is very, very important. But a lot of people can't do that. They're just so paralyzed by the fear that they need a tool to get themselves 
to even start to take action. And that fear is called the reversal of desire. It's actually the first tool that we discuss in the book, The Tools. It's called the reversal of desire because our natural normal desire is to avoid fear, is to avoid pain of, of any sort. That's just built into the human you know, psyche. And we're going to reverse that. We're going to say, fuck it. I want fear. Bring it on. Because I want to teach myself to move through it so it doesn't stop me. So it doesn't limit my life in the ways it's been limiting me. Okay, So I want fear is not a masochistic statement. It's actually a statement of faith in my ability to move through and overcome fear. If you want to put it in a simple word, it's just courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's action in spite of fear. Mm -hmm. It's just the willingness to move forward in spite of the fact that I'm terrified to move forward. That's what courage is. So do you want me to go through the tool? Yeah. Okay. So to use the tool, imagine something that you're afraid to do. It could be a confrontation that you've been avoiding. It could be um, playing a new sport, you know, looking like a fool in some situation, public speaking, you know, public speaking is the number one fear in the United States. You know, it's rated higher on all surveys than death, which leads to this hilarious Seinfeld joke where he says, so that means that at a funeral, most of the audience would rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. <laughs> anyway, imagine, imagine some, taking an action step that would be very scary for you. Forget about the action step and just take the fear that you're feeling and project it out in front of you and visualize it as a Deep, dark cloud. This is the cloud of fear that has kept you back. It has limited your life. It's made your life smaller than we want it to be. And what we're going to do is in three discrete steps, we're going to move you through the cloud and out the other end, just to give you the experience of conquering fear. You're not doing anything, but you're meditating on this. Okay. The first step is bring it on. And you want to say that with that kind of devil-may-care, I don't give a shit what happens, i got to overcome this kind of feeling. Everybody experienced that at some point as a kid. Like, I'm sick of being afraid, I'm just going to do this kind of thing. Now you're inside the cloud and you're moving forward as fast and as aggressively as you can, and you say to yourself, I love fear, which doesn't mean you like the experience of being afraid, it just means you're at one with fear at that moment. And you have to almost become at one with fear in order to overcome it. You have to feel things in order to move through them. You can't stay on this side of them, okay? And then in the third step, the fear cloud just literally spits you out and you're propelled forward and upward into this beautiful blue sky with light around you. And you say to yourself, fear sets me free. So bring it on. I love fear. Fear sets me free. The key to the tool, by the way, is not the words. It's this sense of aggressive forward motion. When I use that tool, I try to use it on the edge of my chair, like straining to move forward like a runner at the block, you know, like just ready to, to move forward. 
because fear is a very primitive emotion and it needs to be met with an equally primitive forward moving force. Mm -hmm. It's just like a football player, like the moment it's called height, it's just, "Mm, I'm moving forward, you know, kind of thing. Now, you use the tool prior to doing something that you're afraid to do. And the more you can use the tool and then slide right into the action, the more effective it is. And you should also use the tool every time you think about taking that action step. Mm -hmm. So most people don't realize that their thoughts are very inhibiting. Like if I'm afraid of confrontations and I know I have a confrontation tomorrow, 20 times today, I'm going to be thinking, you know, maybe tomorrow's not a good day. I should do it next week. Or, God, what if he responds by reaming me or firing me or, you know, something like that? Or your thoughts don't actually help you take action. They help you avoid taking action. So I use the reversal of desire every time I think of taking an action step that Mm -hmm. I'm afraid of. So I'm not only training myself to take action, I'm training myself to think in forward-moving, fear-overcoming ways. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that has always stuck with me that you said is that there is no exoneration from pain and hard work. And there is no end, there's no finish line, and there's no idea that, like, you're you're ever going to have, like, this idea of enough is very difficult for people when they are equating that to enough money, enough fame, enough work. Um... Can you sort of, as we wrap up, just sort of explain, like, how to detach from those feelings of, like, wanting more? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's okay to want more. It, it, it really has to do with something deeper and more unconscious that goes on inside of us. So let me just back up and explain that for a moment. Phil and I are both very strong fans of reality, No matter how (laughs) uncomfortable it is, I just think as a therapist, as a healer, you have to give it straight to people, the good and the bad. So here's the bad news. Life has three invariable principles that you can't avoid. They are unalterable. One of those principles is there's going to be pain. There's just going to be pain in your life. There's no way around it. Another one is there's going to be uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. And there's no way to get rid of that. And the third invariable principle is life requires ceaseless effort. You got to wake up. You got to get up. You got to go do your job. You got to do whatever. Even if you're so rich, you don't have to work. You still have to decide what you're going to do. It still takes effort to sustain a relationship, to make yourself happy, to be productive. You'll be expending effort until the end of your life. I I was with my father when he died, and he was still expending effort trying to explain something to me. It's not, you know, there's no end to that. Now, needless to say... People who hear that think, what the fuck? (laughs) Can't we get a different setup here? Like, you know, that's not happy. And so invariably, we form unconscious fantasies 
ways in which we might exonerate ourselves from those three principles. Now, usually we're not aware of it. Um, it's just, I really, really hope my kid gets into a good private school, you know, or I really, really hope that I could make a lot of money, a killing in the stock market or my startup, you know, or if I just find the right guy, then I'll be happy, you know, kind of thing. You know that you've formed an exoneration fantasy, not because you're necessarily conscious of it, but because when it doesn't come true, you really get crushed. Like you want to give up. You're so demoralized. You also know that it was an exoneration fantasy if you get it, and it's really disappointing. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget, I, I wanted to go to Harvard my whole life as a kid. I was like worshipped the Kennedys. I grew up in that era. And I did everything I could to get into Harvard. And I got in, and I was really happy for like a couple of months. And then I went there, and I'll never forget this. It suddenly hit me, holy shit, I'm at Harvard. I have a fuckwad of work to do. And now I'm surrounded by really bright people. This was not an exoneration. This is more work, you know, kind of thing. And I hadn't been aware that it was an exoneration fantasy, but it clearly was because of my reaction to it, you know, kind of thing. I don't think that you can avoid forming exoneration fantasies because they're mostly unconscious. You certainly can be a student of life and tell yourself, realistically, there's going to be pain, there's going to be uncertainty, and there's going to be ceaseless effort. And I want to live my life that way because that's the way life is organized. And as strange as it might sound, because I know this sounds depressing, people who live in accordance with those laws are actually much, much happier because they're living by the rules. If it's going to happen, the best life you can live is to live by those rules. Those people, when they do suffer pain, they get through it much more quickly because they didn't expect not to have to. When they do have to deal with enormous uncertainty, they more easily say, I can't know, so let's just forge ahead because they, they've schooled themselves in having to deal with uncertainty. And when they have to stay up all night for three nights in a row working on something, they accept it because life is ceaseless effort. The other way to work on exoneration fantasies is when they get blown up, you use tools for recovery. And the main tool for that comes in the second book called Coming Alive. And it's the mother tool. It is the tool that is most like what a human mother or father does for an infant when it falls flat on, it, on its face. It, its exoneration fantasy was it thought it was actually walking and was going to be able to not fall down, and bam, it fell down, okay? And the mother or the father comes down and swoops in with unconditional love and raises the child back up again and is able to give it the the intentionality and the, and the sense of being able to recover and the hopefulness to be able to try again. Thanks for listening to me on the Goop podcast. It's a real passion project. 
And let me tell you about another one, which is InGoop Health, our big wellness summit that brings together a diverse group of thought leaders for conversations on physical, mental, and emotional well-being, like the ones we have on this podcast. We just hosted our third InGoop Health in Los Angeles, and now, for the first time, we're creating a fully digital experience for anyone that couldn't be there in person. It's a way we hope to take in some simple lessons from the day that might just resonate with you, but from the comfort of your couch or car. The digital pass is 60 bucks, and you can learn more at goop.com slash ingoophealth. Thanks so much for joining our interview with Barry Michaels. I always feel more optimistic and energized after listening to him speak. You can learn more about his work at thetoolsbook.com and at goop.com slash the podcast. Now, let's get to that Ask Me Anything. Talia asked, what advice do you have for women who still have major life goals to accomplish as they approach 40? I would say that my advice is to try to achieve them at all costs. I think there's nothing wrong with trying. And even if it doesn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, I think we only regret what we don't try. And a woman who's approaching 40 is really about to step into all of her power. So it's actually a perfect time to try new things, to take a real leap of faith, and to try to accomplish something that might have seemed impossible to accomplish. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.